0: Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. If scientists could scan your brain when you see pictures of black, brown, and white faces, what would they see? Studies show that when we see pictures of black and brown faces, our brains focus on fear, threat, anxiety, and distrust. The brain does not activate the same way when we see white faces. And many of the people who have this reaction say they have no conscious bias. Research conducted over the last two decades reveals that unconscious bias affects the way we interact with each other and treat each other. In 1990 researchers developed a computer-based test called the Implicit Association Test. It measures people's unconscious attitudes. The test has been taken by 4.5 million people, and here's what they found. Over 80% of people who took the test had an age bias holding negative views of the elderly. Nearly three-fourths of whites and Asians who took the test had an implicit bias in favor of whites compared to blacks. The test also found an anti-black prejudice among three-fourths of whites and 33% of blacks. Police departments are working with experts to train officers and set policies to try to minimize this kind of bias. So on today's Your Call, we continue our series on police, community, race, and justice by talking about implicit bias. Can officers be trained to recognize their biases and then alter their behavior? What is the most effective way to combat implicit bias? Today, we are joined by Kimberly Papillon, a judicial professor, attorney, and nationally recognized expert on medical, legal, and legal and Judicial Decision-Making. Kimberly has been on the faculty of the National Judicial College since 2005, and she's conducted trainings on implicit bias for many police departments across the country. And Kimberly joins me here in studio. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure to be here this morning. Great to have you. Marion Jackson is a board member with Officers for Justice. He retired from the SFPD after 36 years and spent seven years in the DA's Investigations Unit. And Marion is back with us in studio. Hi, Marion. Nice to see you again. Hi, it's nice seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. And Jim Dudley is a lecturer in criminal justice studies at San Francisco State. Jim retired from the SFPD last year after a 32-year career. He served as officer, inspector, lieutenant, captain, commander, and deputy chief. And Jim is also in studio. Hi, Jim. Thank you for coming in.
1: Good morning, Rose. Thank you.
0: Great to have you. Uh, So, Kimberly, there's so many different studies out there. Did I get my numbers right? Because sometimes I see 50 percent, sometimes I see 33 percent. Uh, you know, there are studies that have been done in individual
2: pockets where they get a 50% uh, response, in other words, that African Americans would take the test, and 50% of them might show a, bi- show a bias against African Americans, but the national numbers are 33% of African Americans who take the test would show a bias against African Americans, 33% showing a bias against people who are Anglo-American, and 33 showing no bias at all. And that's the only racial group that breaks up with that high level of unbiased individuals on an unconscious level. Um, We've spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, African-American related bias, but that's not where most of the violence comes from in the context of police and citizen interaction. Where does it come from? Well, what we're dealing with, um, quite honestly, is, as you noted, the situation around fear. And we talk about uh, bias as if it's just one layer and relatively simple, but it's actually quite complex. Mm. But our brain actually has a different reaction to things that it is scared of versus things that we're not so scared of. There's a part of our brain called the amygdala, and it activates whenever we see a spider or a snake. So they were able to say, this is the fear center of the brain. And what they found through a series of tests is that if they flash a picture of a black man's face and then a picture of a white man's face, they get a higher level of spider-snake-like amygdala activation for the black man's face than for the white man's face when the person's having their brain scanned in the machine. And that was amazing to see. But it wasn't just the difference in the amount of fear. It was the fact that the amount of fear that was shown on the scan matched directly with people's scores on this implicit association test. A test um, created by Anthony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji, and they were able to put together that we have these automatic
0: associations. And so 4.5 million people so far have taken this test. Yeah. And oh, that's yes. what these
2: stats are based on. That's what we're looking
0: at now. okay.
2: And, and then we have a number of other people who are using the test on numerous occasions just for their own research, other professors. But what we're dealing with is we don't many of us don't believe that we are biased why should we we're taught that being biased is bad right our scientists are telling us that the human brain can hold 40 frames of information in its mind 40 pieces of information consciously in its mind in one second no problem at the same time we have 1.2 million frames of information in that same second being held in the unconscious components of the brain so who's really running the show And when we look at it that way, then we can start saying we need to explore what's going on under the surface. Because when the civil rights movement took us out into this notion of we can't be biased out loud anymore, then the bias didn't disappear. It went underground. Right. And in the context of the brain, underground is the unconscious thought
0: process. And so we're hearing these terms, implicit bias, conscious bias, unconscious bias. How do you define bias? How do you explain this? This notion of having
2: a different reaction to one person versus another, not based on what they did or what they said, but who they are, some aspect of them allowed us to come to a judgment about them that wasn't based on their merits, so to speak. Um, whether or not I determined that an African-American man is holding a gun versus a cell phone versus a wallet when I first see him may not be based on what he actually has inside of his hand. It may be based on the judgment I made about African-American men before I actually took in what he had in his hand. In the context of police and citizen interaction, what we're dealing with here is that that millisecond where I decide I'm going to shoot because I've decided that since this is an African-American man or a Latino man, that he must have a gun in his hand. Hmm. Just as disturbingly, I might make that decision about a 12-year-old boy who's playing with a toy gun. And instead of processing that that might be a toy gun, I go to my fear
0: about whether or not this is a group of people who are threatening. Jim, uh, Jennifer Eberhardt works on this these issues at Stanford. She's spent her career exploring racial bias. She says that it came as a shock to her to see how embedded biases can be, biases we're not even aware of. And she was on the PBS NewsHour recently saying, we're living with severe racial stratification. So first of all, when you look at the big picture, what are your thoughts about this? Just how severe these embedded biases really are?
1: Sure. I think when you talk about uh, the differences between uh, internal and external bias. Then, uh, just as uh, Kimberly mentioned, it's, it's a layer uh, under the conscious brain that's making these decisions and associations. So when we talk about a study of four and a half million people, we're not talking about four and a half million police officers. I think when we talk about implicit bias, we talk about humans. And as we all know, police are hired from the human race. Right, so they have the same human frailties as as the rest of us. So I think there's so many influences that create the implicit bias. Um, the media, for example, um, advertisement, uh, things we've been taught uh, from early childhood, and we've we've manifested them into our own beliefs, uh, either inside or or exterior um, manifested.
0: Uh, Marion, we spoke briefly about bias last week, but what are your thoughts on, you know, what you've seen in terms of bias among uh, your colleagues, police? You just retired from the SFPD after 36 years. What really strikes you when you think about bias?
3: Uh, I agree with Dudley when he says that bias is is basically something that's learned or seen or whatever, and I find that most black, not not black, so much as, but most uh, uh, white, uh, Asian appear to be used bias more than a whole lot of people for some reason. Maybe they did not uh, uh, network with them or, or go to school or whatever with them. And, and it does affect their policing because, uh, and I call it prejudices. They determine who I am before they even talk to me, right? They determine that I'm the bad guy. And And a whole lot of signals are sent from movies, from uh, their parents or or their neighborhood that they came from. But it doesn't give those black and brown people a real good chance because, as you see, a lot of them get shot, killed, or actually uh, beat up or whatever for uh, use of force. And and I, I think until we have a better diverse training and and actually bringing these officers into the community before uh, they actually hit the streets and get to know people of all kind, uh, you will still have those biases.
0: Kimberly, has there been specific studies done with police? There have been. And so we do see that there is
2: bias in various communities based on demographics. So different ethnic or racial groups will have different levels of bias against African-Americans versus Latinos versus Asian-Americans, etc. So we know that that exists. When we compare um, Caucasian officers, ca- Caucasian police officers, to the general Caucasian population, we don't see that big a difference in terms of the amount of unconscious bias. On some tests they do show higher, but we don't see it as if it's twice as, as high as it would be in the general population. The difference is that when police engage in bias, they do so with a gun or a taser or handcuffs. And if we say yes, the bias is very much like what we see in the general population on that same uh, ethnic group. Uh, we have to then say that though we hold police officers to a higher standard. Because what I can do with my computer in terms of bias may not be the same as what a police officer can do. And then we're struck with this conundrum. Uh, Jennifer Eberhardt just won the, um, you mentioned her earlier, um, the professor from Stanford, she just won the Genius Award uh, in the year 2014. So her work has been heralded. And people do have this conversation about, well, maybe it's just familiarity. Maybe I grew up in a neighborhood where I didn't have as many people who looked like that, and so I've taken on these biases that's one part of it. But she did a series of additional studies that showed that it's sometimes not based on familiarity at all. At all, So they actually took a face that was a face of a person who was white and they moved all the features around. So the nose is where the cheek is supposed to be, the eye is at the top, and the ear is at the bottom. There's nothing about this face that could possibly be familiar. Hmm. We're looking at this part of the uh, brain now called the f- fusiform gyrus, not the amygdala, not, not the spider snake. But how do we look at people and decide whether or not that's a human face? And people, and what they found in the research is that african-american faces that were completely intact the face of a black man unchanged still didn't encode as fully human in comparison to the brain reaction that people had to the white face that's what we call the dismantled white face so when white people were looking at that dismantled white face which should have seemed completely unfamiliar because there's nothing familiar about having the nose in the wrong place Mm -hmm. they encoded that as more societally seen as human in their brain than the black man's intact face. So it's not just, am I scared? It's, do I believe that this is a human being? And then what cascades from that? How do I treat a person who I see as less than a person? So this whole call of Black Lives Matter, we're first having to define the notion of, this is a life, a human life. And then we can go to, and by the way, yes, of course it
0: matters. Hmm. That is Kimberly Papillon, a judicial professor and attorney, nationally recognized expert on medical, legal, and judicial making. She teaches judges, doctors, and police officers nationwide and internationally on the neuroscience of decision making. I'm also joined by Jim Dudley, a lecturer in criminal justice studies at SF State. He retired from the SFPD last year after a 32-year career. Marion Jackson is board member with Officers for Justice. He retired from the SFPD. After 36 years And today we are talking about Implicit Bias. There's so much research out there now that shows, for example, if scientists scan your brain when you see pictures of black, brown, and white faces, the brain does not activate the same way when we see the white faces. When we see the black faces, we focus on fear, threat, anxiety, and distrust. Even if we think that we're all about fairness and equality, we all still have biases. So, what questions do you have about bias? Are you familiar with your biases? And then, when it comes to policing, how do you think this affects policing? And what can we do to combat this? If you work in this field, if you work uh, with police, or if you work in the field of bias, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255, 798 8255 You can also email feedback at yourcallradio.org. So, Jim, once these studies are done, and then you bring someone in like Kimberly to talk to officers. What was really great about the NewsHour piece is they brought in Jennifer Eberhardt, and she said that some of the officers are very uncomfortable talking about this, mm-hmm. right? So how do you even start that conversation?
1: Well, I think um, everyone comes in the police department with their own set of ideals and, and formations. So you wonder if the biases came pre-employment or if they were part of the institutionalized training of police and i think that's really important to find out and so i can't wait till there's baseline studies that that pre-test officers prior to getting in the police department do some baseline studies and then maybe two or five years post-graduation uh, from the academy in working in the community and test them there and see if the, the training actually had some influence. I know in San Francisco, for instance, the, the police academy is 32, weeks, 32 months long. And that's a little bit longer than most others, and that's because uh, Chief Sir, in particular, instituted some programs to have officers interact with children and and youth in the districts that they're going to serve. So you see a lot of uh, interaction with youth in after-school programs and athletic programs. But also during the academy, there are several instances of cultural diversity where officers go in... To the communities that they're going to serve and learn from people, I think I think Marion here has probably talked at um, the cultural diversity trainings as well. Yeah, uh,
3: I I think uh, what Kimberly said is is part of the problem is that if you believe that I'm not human, and basically the Constitution, basically after the Three Fifth Act, right, said I'm not human a lot of people to keep people in slavery you have to think that they're not human right and that tradition carries on today right that we're not really human beings and um, even I, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar they did the doll test right the black and white doll yes. even black kids mm-hmm. thought that black people were the bad when they say who's the bad doll it was the black one almost all the time right so so People get brainwashed and then, like officers, uh, um, they get stimulated when they go into community if they see the same thing over and over again. So they buy into their biases, right? That that has to be true because I see it all the time. But in reality, uh, probably 2% of black people are bad, 2% of white people are bad. So it's the same all the way through. Black folks just commit different kind of crime because they're in economically they're in a, a different kind of situation right we don't work at the banks or wherever the white collar jobs so consequently they do more vi- I, I would not even say more violent crime but they do different kind of crime.
0: Well, you were pointing out, Marion, last week that when cops go into black neighborhoods, in and, and many instances, there are so many cultural differences and they're not really sure how to deal with it. So one example you gave is that a lot of kids that you deal, have dealt with, like, just swear that's how they get their points across. And you know that they do that, right? And, right. But you say that some of the white cops that you've been around call backup. Because they're not familiar with that. Right. So can you elaborate on that a bit?
3: Because uh, uh, some black kids' communication skills uh, aren't as good as it should be. A lot of profanity is used. A lot of uh, high-pitched language, you know, screaming, hollering at each other. And, And I've seen this. When black cops come, they treat it differently than when white cops come. When white cops come in and they see it, or Asian cops, they go into a a fear mode and they call for backup right away. When, in fact, if you just listen to what that person says, then they usually come down and then you can actually uh, uh, adjudicate the the situation.
2: I would say... um That we don't have any studies that show that there's a different communication, um, one group being more rude or cursing more than the other, um, but rather that there's a different way that we look at the same types of behavior. Um, Our statistics show, and I'm talking about Bush 1 and Bush 2 era statistics showing repeatedly that we have seven times more white crack cocaine users Mm. when crack was in vogue, so to speak. And now we're in the land of meth, and we've got seven times more meth users who are white between the ages of 18 and 24. But our, our prisons are not filled with seven times more white kids or white young adults who have used those types of substances um, and, and actually been charged with uh, possession or even possession with intent to sell. So it's not that we have a difference in behavior. We have the same percentage of risk-averse people and people willing to take risks in each one of the groups. But one group is patrolled and the other one is protected. So who I'm going to pick up versus who I'm going to let in and out of the system very quickly, that's where the differential lies. And it's such a significant effect that instead of having seven times more white children or white young adults inside of the system, we have seven times more African American young adults inside of the system. So the bias itself has actually flipped on its head Mm. the reality. And then what we do is we take in that biased result and say, well, what I keep seeing is African American kids engaging in, in behavior X, Y, and Z. Well, that's because the bias has already prepaid, so to speak, on this account. And you've gone and you've said, here it is. It's the reality. And the statistics show us something very different. The power of bias is that despite the statistics, we continue to believe the lie. And that's what's so insidious about unconscious bias. And we see this in police officers, but we see it in every group as well. We like to point the p- finger there, and I've already said for good reason, because they have a higher standard that they should be held to. Um, but they had a fantastic test that they do where they pop up pictures of people who are wearing are holding guns or cell phones or wallets, and you have to respond on your keyboard hitting the E or the I key. If it's a gun, you say shoot. If it's a cell phone or a wallet, you say no shoot. And the computer measures in milliseconds how much longer it takes you to react to one versus the other, and it measures the number of mistakes that you make. And they found over and over again, when the African-American picture pops up with the person holding the gun, they get a high accuracy rate quickly. They say shoot. And this is police officers and people throughout the country, particularly Anglo-American peoples who, who we are um, focusing on now. And then when the uh, young kids who or the teenagers who are holding the wallet or the cell phone pop up, people say no shoot. But when the young kids who are Anglo-American pop up and they're holding a gun, people still say no shoot. They hit the no shoot button as if they can't possibly believe that that's a gun. That leaves the police officers... Vulnerable, And that means that you have situations like Columbine, where we see a group of white kids Mm. walking around with all the accoutrement that makes them into a gang, and no one's willing to call it anything more than a club. And then someone winds up dying because we refuse to actually connect those two ideas. We have all of these tests over and over again showing when the person pops up and they're African-American and they're holding the wallet or the cell phone, people say, shoot. And we see it in reality, and we see it in the tests on the computer. The police officers do it, and people in that demographic group do it over and over again
0: throughout the country. And that's why black and brown young men are dying. Mm. Gosh, this is so deeply ingrained. So, Kimberly, you work with judges and cops, doctors nationwide and internationally. Thinking about the conversations we're having now, Black Lives Matter, there's, people are really paying attention to these issues, Where do we begin when we talk about this? Because we could sort of put bias here, and it it seems like it's all these different boxes, but how are you connecting all of the dots? We've got to start with leadership. Um, we have uh, an excellent public defender here in
2: the San Francisco. We have an excellent public defender in Alameda County who are working to change programs so that there is a dialogue going on and people are looking at the way we charge and prosecute differently. We have district attorney's offices who have gotten on board. How are we going to change the way that this works? Um, we also talk about this notion of body cams. And people want to, um, logically, it makes sense. We put a body cam, we put a camera on a police officer, and now they know they're being monitored. But actually, there's a neurophysiologic correlate or a brain reaction that links in with that. We know that when we do that shoot-no-shoot test, if we scan people's brains and we just let them take the test, there's a part of their brain that'll go off trying to keep them from doing the wrong thing. It doesn't work very well. Then there's another part of their brain that will go off very infrequently to make them do the right thing. And the only time we can get that to turn on is when we tell the people while they're taking the test that they're being monitored for race bias. Hmm. So that camera does the job.
0: I hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to have a debate, actually, about body cameras in two weeks. Today we are talking about implicit bias and policing. We'll be back after this. <laughs>
3: This is Your Call on Local Public Radio, KALW. Lots of ways to take part in our conversation on today's program. You can send an email, question, or comment to feedback at yourcallradio.org, or you can call and join the conversation toll-free at 866-798-8255. 866-798-TALK. Coming up at 11 o'clock from the BBC world have your say. Following that at noon today, Ira Glass and This American Life, and then at one o'clock, it's Glenn Washington and Snap Judgment. Here on KALW, San Francisco.
0: This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will talk about what it will take to make the UC budget process more transparent. California Governor Jerry Brown and UC President Janet Napolitano are clashing over Napolitano's request for a tuition hike. University doctors just walked off the job for the first time ever to protest what they're calling unfair labor practices. So what will it take to get the UC system to provide information about its finances? That is tomorrow. Friday, it's our media roundtable. We'll be discussing coverage of Syriza's victory in Greece. And if you saw anything in the media that stood out for you this week, please send it over to uh, feedback at yourcallradio.org. Today we are talking about implicit bias. What role does this play in policing? Even those of us who believe in equality and fairness show significant patterns of bias. A lot of research has been conducted on this over the past couple of decades. Four and a half million people have taken this implicit association test. It found that nearly three-fourths of whites and Asians had an implicit bias in favor of whites compared to blacks. So what do you think explains this? And what do you think... I think needs to be done to change this, especially when it comes to policing. The toll-free number is 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email feedback at yourcallradio.org. Today I'm joined by Kimberly Papillon. She's an attorney and nationally recognized expert on judicial decision-making. She teaches judges, doctors, and police officers on the neuroscience of decision-making. Marion Jackson is a board member with Officers for Justice He retired from the SFPD after 36 years, and Jim Dudley is a lecturer in criminal justice at SF State. He retired from SFPD last year after a 32-year career. And let's hear from a few callers. Let's go to Madeline in El Cerrito. Hi, Madeline. Welcome to the show. Hi. thanks, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a question about how to prevent bias from developing. I'm a white kindergarten teacher and I'm wondering if um, you can teach kids how to recognize bias or prevent bias from forming strictly through literature or explicit teaching about bias, or
1: if it requires actually, let's say you have a white majority classroom, relationships forming with black and brown kids.
0: All right, thank you for that, Madeline. Kimberly,
2: do you want to take that? Um, Yes, that's a wonderful question. Uh, Relationships alone, Uh, help a little bit, but they don't do the full job. Um, We have enough studies on what I call some of my best friends are, fill in the blank, (laughs) where people say that they have best friends from a particular group, whatever it may be, and therefore they must be absolved of the possibility of being biased in that arena. Um, Our studies show that that actually doesn't work to absolve us of all the bias. Certainly reading certain books that have people of color um, or people from any group in a positive light so that there's a balance is helpful as well. But we don't get it just from the books. There's the television shows, um, and we can monitor the television shows, and we can actually help kids analyze the show. Why does that person speak that way if they're the bad guy? We have an animated movie all about dogs. Why is the African-American so-called voice, not that there is an African-American accent, but use your imagination, why is that always attributable to the Doberman Pinscher in the dog movies with the spiked collar? Um, why is the bulldog always sound like he has a Brooklyn or an Italian-American accent? Why do we have these motifs for the bad guy? But you know, it goes so much deeper. You, as a teacher, can do so much important work to undo bias, but as a teacher, we must also seek to work with the parents to undo the bias, because it's the parents who are walking down the street with their five-year-old and squeezing the hand a little bit more unconsciously when they walk by the person who appears to be dangerous, either because of ethnicity or because of socioeconomic status. It's the parents that get to a certain corner, and when the young black and brown men are crossing the street they suddenly remember that they forgot to lock their doors and click, click. And the child in the car seat in the back hears that and recognizes this is a signal of danger and makes that connection. It is the parents who watch The Lion King and say, gosh, what's going on? Um, Why am I looking at this? And over and over again, the Latino accent is coming from the individual who's the bad hyena. And the uh, Ebonic so-called accent with Goldberg is also the bad hyena. Why are all the good characters sounding somewhat different, so to speak? Why did James Earl Jones remove the so-called ethnicity from his voice to play the father in that particular movie. If we
0: don't have the parents on board, then we can do a lot, but it won't be enough. Uh, Jim, you're a lecturer in criminal justice studies at SF State. You just retired from SFPD last year after a 32-year career. How do you talk to your students about these issues?
1: We talk about it a lot. We talk about it especially in my ethics class where we talk about... um, bias on many different levels. And we talk about um, uh, Edwin Delatre writes a book called Character in Cops, and he goes back to forming our opinions at as, as Madeline's asking, at the very youngest ages, when you learn the difference from right and wrong and who's good and who's bad and and who influences that. So you, you end up being a product of your environment. But it's funny because Kimberly here points out um, something that goes against the grain with me, and that is when uh, you, you see a parent walking down the street with a child and they say, if you don't, fill in the blank, that policeman's going to arrest you. And so there is an implicit bias created at the very earliest point in, in a child's life when, when the parent says that. And I, and I know a lot of other officers, will take the time to go up to that child and put a friendly face next to theirs and say, we would never do that. Cops love kids. If you're ever in trouble, come find a cop and, and we'll help you. So I think across the board, um, bias is created Movies, TV, uh, what you read in the paper—I mean, you know which which news media outlets are biased one way or the other. Um, I get I get bombarded with these um, news clips, and and it's not hard to figure out who's in favor of what um, by what they constantly put out. So it's it's reinforced. I I, I don't think it's so uh, simple to say we can change X curriculum and we'll be fixed. I don't think it's it's that simple. I think you need uh, multiples. Of people having input on different uh, programs to change biases. Because I think if you just get one person changing the training, you may just uh, install a, a whole set of biases, a whole new set of biases. And uh, I think there's too many social experiments going on right now and I think we should be really careful in how we make changes.
0: Hmm. Do too many of your students want to be cops?
1: Yeah, I'd say about 90 plus percent oh, wow. want to be in uh, a law enforcement career. Uh, a lot of them want to be counselors. They want to go into probation or parole or uh, some sort of a medical field that deals with um, children or youth, alternative justice and things like that.
0: Are, are many of the students talking about Black Lives Matter and all of these issues that have been raised as a result? Well, we've,
1: we've talked about NYPD, stop and frisk, the broken windows theory, um, on and on and on. And uh, one of the, the projects that I, I like to give the students is to write about a use of force issue of their own choosing, and talk about it in relation to ethics. And they they know at that point of the of the semester that there are real choices in in making ethical decisions. But but now we talk about implicit bias too, and maybe it's an unconscious decision that somebody's making, but but clearly it's a wrong one.
0: All right. Well, thank you again for calling in, Madeline, with that really great question. Thank you. Uh, let's go next to Robert in San Francisco. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Hi. Um, as a black man, i got to tell you, this the, the facts are really disturbing that you're bringing out, and uh, but it makes a lot of things really clear also. And my question is, uh, well, it, it, okay, can this thing be counterbalanced and um uh what should black people do i mean if i'm if if people are looking at me as if i'm an animal you know i i need to i need to get somewhere where i can get some peace because there are there are lives being lost and Hmm. so how are we going to what should black people do
0: all right well thank you marion do you want to take that question because as a black cop you've got a lot of stories about how you've been treated by your colleagues uh, Former black cop, I should yeah. say, right?
3: Uh, yes. Uh, the, the only advice that I can give is that to feel safe, especially when you are, are confronted with a police officer, is basically do what they say. I mean, your chances are better getting out without any type of a conflict it is better. Right. Uh, Hopefully, they will get over that fear of you if you're obeying. But that's not necessarily true either, right? Because a perfect example of is that the uh, officer that approached the guy at the gas station that was getting gas and he was following the officer's orders and he still got shot. So, but your best chance of surviving a police stop is obeying the officer's command.
0: What about the larger question, Kimberly? Because it doesn't feel very good to hear these statistics that uh, anti-black pre- prejudice happens among three-fourths of whites, 33 percent of blacks, nearly three-fourths of whites and Asians who took this implicit association test had an implicit bias in favor of whites compared to blacks. How do you talk to to blacks about this? Uh, like Like the gentleman who just called in Robert. Well, I think the first step
2: um, is that for many years, uh, psychologists call this notion crazy-making. For many years, African Americans and Latinos have been told that they have imagined much of this. This isn't really happening. And even though within certain communities there was validation saying, yes, I had that. It happened to me, too. Yes, I know I was followed around the store when I walked in. Yes, I do have to actually dress differently when I walk into a department store to not be treated one way versus another. Um, people recognize that, but the validation adds that additional buttress to the mental health. Um, the other thing that it does is it allows people, when they're informed, to protect themselves properly. Um, so, yes, it is very helpful to follow the orders of the police officers, but we know at Fruitville Station, when you are um, on your uh, laying on your belly and actually handcuffed in the back, that there is no order that you can follow other than be still, and even when you do that, you can lose your life. So we do want to direct people always to follow the law, but I don't think that's missing in the African-American or Latino communities. I don't think there's people out there saying, please don't follow the law, run whenever you see police officers. Um, Rather, or or even that the parents are feeding them um, propaganda that goes against their actual experience. What's happening instead is that we have to learn at a very early age that this is real, Mm -hmm and um, that we have to not tell ourselves that we're imagining it so that we can have a different health-related effect. So we've been talking about neuroscience. We have to talk for a moment about epigenetics.
0: What is that?
2: um, This notion of how the DNA changes Mm. over time. We have to have a conversation about how if over and over again you are treated differently, over and over again you are treated differently and unfairly on the basis of race or several other categories as well, you can have a change in the way your DNA works. And over time, it can create such extraordinarily harmful health effects that your DNA can reform. And whenever it has a stressful interaction, someone has a stressful interaction with you, the DNA can make it so that you are sending chemicals throughout your body that over the long term, over a lifetime, cause the literal shredding of the internal organs. And the key components when this really makes a difference, when this is really happening in terms of the genetic change, is for young men between the ages of 9 and 14 when they're making the genetic material to pass on to the next generation generation, and women who are holding a child in utero, Mm -hmm. which means that, and this lasts for the next four generations after the epigenetic change occurs. So when the police officer on the street is constantly doing the stop and frisk with the 12-year-old young man, they are not just having an effect on that individual at that moment, but on that individual for a lifetime, and then on the the next four generations, and then on the entire community. So we have to make sure that we understand that there has to be intra-community education on it, and this is going to affect our kids. So if they give police officers three pictures, all pictures that look like 10-year-old boys across the board, all the things that makes a face look like a 10-year-old boy, no, no facial hair and a round face and chubby cheeks, and then you add on facial features that are specific to the ethnic group. Um, now this 10-year-old boy looks white. Now he looks Latino. Now he looks African-American. They hand the picture to police officers, tell them a story of the kid engaging in a felony, and say, guess how old the kid is. They look at the 9-year-old boy, previously guessed at age 10 by a whole bunch of people, no questions asked. But when they hear the story about the felony, they look at the 10-year-old boy who's white, and they guess that he's 9. They look at the 10-year-old boy who's Latino, and they guess that he's 12. They look at the 10-year-old boy who's African-American, and they guess that he's 14. Do the same test again with the police officers, but first show them a picture of an ape? Now they guess that the African-American child is 16 years old and that the white child is seven and a half years old. So the imposition of certain images, the information about who is criminal and who is not, is going to make a big difference when that young child is walking down the street and having to figure out, how does that police officer view me?
0: When you take this into a classroom with police and you present this information, Do you see tangible changes? They are very receptive. Um, Actually, the most difficult people to
2: teach fairness to are people who value fairness the most or people who have their reputation riding on the fact that they are fair. Police officers don't have that reputation to upkeep. They already know that many people believe them to be unfair, so they don't have to put on any airs. They hear this information. I find them to be one of the most receptive groups groups because I talk to them, and they say to me, you know what? I don't know what that amygdala thing is, but I know that when I am on the street and people get upset, they can't think through a problem. And you just showed me how the brain works to show that that's true, and I know that it's true. I know it's happened to me. I know it's happening to the people that I arrest. This sounds like reality, wrapped in a lot of Latin. Tell me some more. So they are a group that I think is very reachable, but somebody has to take the leadership and expose them to the information and then use the validated peer-reviewed studies that we have in place that will actually change their implicit bias scores.
0: That's the next step. Kimberly Papillon is an attorney and expert on medical, legal, and judicial decision-making. She teaches judges, doctors, and police officers nationwide and internationally on the neuroscience of decision-making. Marion Jackson is a board member with Officers for Justice. He retired from the SFPD after 36 years. Jim Dudley is a lecturer in criminal justice studies at SF State. He retired from SFPD last year after a 32-year career. And we've got full line so let's go next to robert in san francisco hi robert
4: yeah hi um yeah i've been listening and you know obviously it's actually kind of depressing the effect of intrinsic violence and how people and cops are programmed but it, it seems to me, what, what seems to be missing here is the actual what i think the reality of the situation i grew up in san francisco new york and went to public schools in both cities i'm white yeah. by the time i was 18 i was held up at gunpoint twice both times by African Americans. I've been attacked in school and my friends were attacked numerous times, all the time, 100% of the time, by African Americans. Obviously, the vast majority of African Americans don't do things like that. But if the only time the violence is being perpetrated is by this minority of African Americans who do these things, we're talking about neurological programming. How are people neurologically programmed? I think that has a much more profound effect mm. on people and their intrinsic reactions. know what the media does. And one more point, the media kind of bends over backwards. When you read about a crime in the San Francisco Chronicle or SFGate, they never, they don't give the race to the perpetrator. They don't say who did it. So they're actually bending over backwards to not tell people the, the racial makeup who committed crimes because they don't want to create that bias. So in any event, that's just my two cents.
0: Well, and so can I ask you, Robert, I mean, how has that affected your bias?
4: Well, I mean, I think look. I think what is great about America is people are going to have biases, and I think biases are inevitable because this stuff happens. I was held up like that. However, the point is what you try to do is treat everybody as an individual, and just because a higher percentage of a certain group does something doesn't mean you hold it against the entire group. The difficulty is... Because this stuff has happened, and these studies we just heard about here where people have this programming and have this intrinsic bias, unfortunately people act out unconsciously. So obviously I try to not do that, and I think I'm successful in that regard. But if if I was a cop, given my experience, could I promise that my reflection, that fraction of a second,
0: would be exactly the same Mm. with an
4: African-American as a white person? I I don't think I could promise that. I wish I could.
0: Mm. Who would like to address that one? Well, I'll I'll
2: just go quickly and say this. Um, uh, I don't want to invalidate your experience, and I want to apologize for, um, you know, the fact that that probably did have a significant effect on you. It would have had a significant effect on you regardless of the race of the individual because those are traumatic events. But we can't take the anecdotal personal experiences and globalize them. So we have no information whatsoever to indicate that African Americans are more violent, engage in more violent crimes engage in larger numbers of muggings, so to speak or carjackings or anything of that kind in fact quite to the contrary african-americans make up less than 10 percent of the population and they make up approximately that same percentage of violent crimes but if we keep having the reinforcement but this gen- gentleman had a personal experience um, but not everybody has that personal experience but if we keep having the reinforcement of those messages then we say, oh, yeah, that must be true because I saw it on TV, and those are the crimes that are reported, and those are the crimes where people are arrested. But that really is not the reality inside of the statistics, and that's what we have to pay attention to. And if we go and we say that, well, you know, it's African Americans cr- committing more crimes, et cetera, and that I have this bias and I need to work on it, but they created the picture in my mind, let's really hear what we're saying. We're saying that we are buying into the notion that African American people are endemically more likely to engage in criminal behavior, that they are naturally more hostile and more violent. Nobody
0: will sign on to that consciously, but unconsciously, that's the message. Well, and we have a related email from Cindy who says, can someone talk about the stats in terms of who commits the crimes? Is there any correlation between the number of crimes committed in San Francisco by black suspects versus white suspects that may lead an officer or a citizen to legitimately have more fear of a black suspect than a white suspect?
2: No, there's not. There is, a, there is a direct correlation between the number of arrests. And stop and frisks, but there is not a correlation between actual crimes committed. When we look at self reports of crime, when we look at, uh, particularly even when we look at domestic violence, we have cops coming to a household that has a domestic violence situation and uh, leaving more quickly if the perpetrator is white versus if the perpetrator is black, etc. So we see that over and over again. And I already cited the drug related statistics that are um, really remarkable.
1: Jim? Well, I would just like to say in, in San Francisco, when, when you say stop and frisk, I, I I cringe a little bit because we don't do that. That's not a practice in San Francisco, per se. The African-American on African-American homicide rate is is a true indicator of who's more likely to get killed by who in San Francisco. And over the years, you can see a pattern where we've done enforcement operations to concentrate on reducing that number. And homicide is a is a it's a indelible fact. You have a body, you you usually have a suspect or you you may have somebody uh witness the crime. So those numbers are pretty solid and over the years we made sig- significant impact to reduce those numbers. But yet It still happens, and not just in San Francisco, but look at Chicago and Baltimore and other uh, big urban areas, and you do have, unfortunately, you do have this high number of black-on-black crimes.
2: And you have a high number of white-on-white White crimes, crimes, but we never call it that. That's right. We never call Columbine white-on-white. We don't right. call Newtown white-on-white. We don't call things that happen in Colorado where they shoot up the theater white-on-white. Right. We don't call white-collar crime, which is theft. It's a mugging with a computer. We don't call that white-on-white crime. We just call it white-collar crime.
3: Right, and you're absolutely right. Uh, if you look at he, he suggested that black folks kill black folks more than anybody else, and that's true white people kill white people more than anybody else asian kill asian more, because those are people you're around right and if, and if you have a social economic condition uh, like they've shown in in some studies with rats and stuff if you jam pack together you're going to do more violent right so uh, so your economic condition plays a, a big part but, but you have to right. there's other other crimes that white people do that we don't say uh if you ask anybody, they'll say that black people kill police more than anybody. But I guarantee you, probably white people kill cops more than anything. When we talk about uh, uh, the fact the Bundy situation, right? They were against all the laws of the United States. Yet they were held by certain, especially certain news people as great American. Those... uh, those some of those same people left that and went to 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 was Las Vegas killed two cops you don't hear about that you just hear about that but they don't condemn the whole white race they don't condemn the ar- anarchists where they came from
1: Pennsylvania is the same. Well, well they do. They, 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 they publicize that. The, you're talking about Bundy, the Bundy Ranch and the extremists who came to his aid and armed themselves and had a standoff with law enforcement. That was well documented. Yeah, and but
3: as great human beings,
1: right? No, I don't,
3: I don't think no, so. I, no. de-
1: depending on your perspective, uh, Marion, I, I think they were more vilified than anything else. You had white supremacists coupled with extremists, and I don't think anybody favored that
2: group. There were a group, there were a number of people who would hold them up as exercising their civil rights, and that is not what's said of young African Americans. For instance, um, when we have a situation where the um, uh, young man deserted um, uh, his Marine Corps group and we start having a conversation about, I heard on the news, the statement was, this was a good kid who made a bad decision. We have a way of describing it differently when it is, uh, when the crime is perpetrated by one race or ethnic group versus another. But the question also has to be asked why do we spend so much time talking about what African Americans do to other African Americans if it's in the same proportion as what each ethnic group does inside of its own ethnic group? But whenever we start talking about um, any type of racial discrimination against black or brown people, people start pointing to the crime inside of the group. Oh, you need to work on yourself first. There are problems inside of the community, they say. But they don't say that about the other communities. It is the blame the victim mentality that keeps us from getting to the solution. And the goal is, and I think there's a neurophysiologic correlate to this, when we see that unfairness occurs, we actually have a reaction in our brain, a part of the brain called the insula, which is the same part of the brain that actually reacts when we smell rotten garbage. We're disgusted when we see something that is unfair. We recognize that this is unfair. We've got to counter it. We've got to create a reward system, something that makes us feel a little bit better. So we focus on the fact, we say, those folks are hurting each other too. Does that make it okay? Would we ever use that rationale? Find a place where we would ever use that rationale for people who are white and see if that sounds right when we say it out loud.
0: We, we only have about a minute left. This show just flew by. I, I wanted to bring in something again real. Uh, Connie Rice, a civil rights attorney, was on Meet the Press, and I was floored by what she said because you rarely hear people say things that are so real. She said when she talks to cops, they say, Can I tell you I'm scared of black people? I'm afraid of black men. What do I do? So I know only have a minute left. We can have, we'll have to do another show on this. But Marion, um, just quickly, how do you think police forces should deal with this reality?
3: Oh, well, I, I think it's through training, uh, uh, interaction with the community that's not involving uh, crime, right? You, you should do more community policing, so forth. You have to be in the community for everything and not just responding to a, a call for service, you know. And that's
1: one of the the biggest way I think.
0: Jim, 20 seconds.
1: Totally. You have to get in a prevention mode, do everything up front. Don't wait for the critical incident to happen.
0: Thank you. Jim Dudley is a lecturer in criminal justice studies at SF State. He just retired from the SFPD after a 32-year career. Marion Jackson is a board member with Officers for Justice. He retired from the SFPD after 36 years. Kimberly Papillon is an attorney and expert on judicial decision making. She works with cops nationwide on these issues. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. What will it take to make the University of California's budget process more transparent? On the next Shore Call, we'll have a conversation about the UC budget. California Governor Jerry Brown and UC President Janet Napolitano are clashing over Napolitano's request for a significant tuition hike. Meantime, UC doctors have walked off the job for the first time to protest what they call unfair labor practices. So what will it take to get the UC system to provide information about its finances? It's Your Call with me, Rose Aguilar, and you. Support for Your Call comes from the listeners of KALW. To listen to past shows or sign up for our podcast, visit yourcallradio.org. Nock produces the show, Malihi Razazan is senior producer, and Matt Martin is executive producer. Phil Hartman is our chief engineer, and Joe Burke is our studio engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Live Human. Special thanks to our partners at KUSP in Santa Cruz. You can email us at feedback at yourcallradio.org.